When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, thanks for coming back to Soul Sisters. I'm your host, Jessie Katz, and I have a very exciting episode to share with you today. I am being very emphatic about how exciting this episode is because it is with one of my favorite artists of all time who has recorded one of my favorite songs of all time. That song is called Stay, I Missed You. It is also from one of my favorite movies of all time. That movie is called Reality Bites. And the guest I'm talking about is Lisa Loeb. Lisa Loeb is on Soul Sisters today. It's a really big deal. I hope you guys understand. This is a big deal to me. It's a big deal to Dara. It's a big deal to Billboard, and hopefully it's a big deal to you, and that's why you clicked on this episode of Soul Sisters. Um, we spent about an hour talking with Lisa. I'm going to give you the full conversation. She's so smart, so interesting. Walked through every minute of how Stay was written and recorded and passed along to Ethan Hawke and made it into the hands of Ben Stiller and got into the movie and made Lisa Loeb the first artist to have a number one song before being signed to a label, which is crazy if you think about it. And we had a lot of questions for her about how it all went down. I mean, we went way back into her career before that, and we also zoomed way forward to find out what she's been doing now. She has some awesome children's albums out, um, and she is about to do a stint at the Cafe Carlisle in New York, June 6th to the 17th. If you're in the city, you definitely want to check her out. And here's the other thing, guys. She actually performed a live set in the Billboard office when she was here. And at the end of this episode, we included her playing Stay live in the office. So you want to sit back, relax, savor this one, and enjoy it till the end. I promise it won't disappoint. Without further ado, Lisa Loeb on Soul Sisters. As an artist, how do you how do you take part in the revolution? Yeah, is that, it's going to be okay. It's all it's going to be gonna all right. Be all right. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Is more for children, <laughs> <laughs> but applicable to other situations. Right. No, I think. Um, well, I mean, through music in general, I, it's it's hard because I've never been like a. I, I always thought it was really hard to write about specific topics, like political topics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like definitely through my kids' music, it's given me a place to write. About positive things. I mean, I always did that in my grown-up music. Try to take a look at something to see what is in your control. Mm -hmm. Because you can't control other people. Mm -hmm. But figure out what is in your control. Um, And on my most recent record, I have a song about respecting each other. Like, you say hello. You know, even just give them a head nod. Yeah. Oh, I said an inside burp. Sorry. (laughs) So you give people at least a head head nod. You know, uh, you respect people enough to say hello. You... um, 
you try to remember, you know, there's a lot of negativity going around. Try to remind kids and grownups that you can, you know, take a U-turn or, or, or try. Anything is in your power to try at least. Mm-hmm. You know, you might not succeed all the time, but you can try. It's normal to be nervous or worried, but, you know, you try for something more positive. But I don't know. I, I, I think it's I, – I think I started writing songs like that too because I was often asked to play it a huge gay parade or like a, you know, gay pride or, you know, these wonderful benefits for these amazing positive um, organizations and people trying to do good in the world. And uh-huh. I'd get up and they're like, play, stay, I missed you. And I'm happy to play it, but it's not a happy song and it's right. not like a very encouraging song. So I, I, I got together it's a with college a friend. It makes people song. happy. It's a college, it's, it makes people happy, but it but never feels quite appropriate. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I have a couple of upbeat songs, but they still don't really fit any of those. Mm-hmm those, um, events. And so I actually, when I got together with a guy I met, it was very weird. I was taking a writing class, writing, like, like writing, not, not horse songwriting, writing. not horse writing. Definitely. I'm allergic <laughs> to horses and hay. Um, I sing about that on my new record, but I'm allergic to horses, but I was doing a writing class just because I felt like I needed to do more writing and I was mm-hmm. kind of getting stuck here and there. And, um, when was this song, song, just writing, writing, writing. And yeah, just, just song. I just also, I think I wanted to be a better writer. Um, Were we talking about <clears throat> mid-career you did this? Yeah, or? like about uh, five years ago or something. Oh, wow. And my friend was taking this writing class. She's working on a book. And I thought, well, that would be great structure to have to sit down and write. Um, this is a very long story. I can go backwards <laughs> in time to give you even more We will. We'll yeah. take you back. Um, this is so I, I, yeah, about this one particular song, yeah. though, first, I, I was taking this writing class. And the very final, there were many classes my actual class, I couldn't be at the actual final where you get up and read something you wrote. Um, it's for people of all different levels. It's not different leveled writing. Different people are all mixed together and different levels of experience. Going to a class? I'm going to a class. It's imagine, not like you have. Can you imagine being in a writing class? You, with but it's not like homework or anything. It's just like this ongoing class that you can go to, and you you write, and he gives you. A, there's different exercises to write, right? And then you write them, and you get up and you read them, and that's part of it. And people critique it or whatever, yeah. Or they don't critique it. I don't. Maybe they don't critique it. Maybe they just hear it, okay. And they respond to it that they heard it. That's so vulnerable. Maybe there's some maybe there's some critiquing. It is. It is, and it's writing, yeah. And uh, it's more about expressing yourself, and uh-huh. I don't know. People take it for all different reasons, right? For me, it was structure. And I always have so many things going on. I was like, I need to just do more writing. This will be good structure. But the very final class, I wasn't able to go to my own class. So I was going to another class's final where you get up and you read. Um, Final meaning the last class, not like tests. Uh Um, (laughs) And also the teacher over the, you know, the last month or so realized I was a singer. He didn't know I was a singer and he loves music. And so he said, oh, would you get up and sing a song in front of the class as well? Mm -hmm. So I did that. And this woman afterwards came up to me and introduced herself. She was a a creative psychologist or somebody who helps people, you know, find their creative path. I, I don't remember the exact name of the right. job that she did. She's but, like a creative coach. But she said, oh, you know, my son is a songwriter too. Let me get you a CD. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, a lot of people yeah, give me CDs sure. and there are a handful that are good, but you know, there, there's a lot of CDs that start to stack up on my desk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. And Amazing. um, I'm kicking feet here. <laughs> and so she gave me this CD and her son's, and, and I thought, oh, I I, I'm just going to listen to this. I'm not going to procrastinate it. I'm just going to listen to it. It's not going to sit on my desk. That's so nice of you that to listen to nice. it. So I got in my car. I had to drive over the hill back to my house. Uh-huh. 
and I put the CD in and it was one of the most beautiful CDs I'd ever heard. No way. And it's, it was in my car for years. And, uh, it ended up being in my car for years and years and years. It's probably still one of the five CDs in my car. Yes, I still listen to CDs in my car. <laughs> um, they're better quality. And But it was beautiful. And the guy's name was Eric Lumiere. And I got in touch with him and I asked if he would write with me. And it was sort of the beginning of me thinking, you know, I need to collaborate more again. Because uh-huh. I like writing by myself. I valued writing by myself over everything. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I'd had some taste of collaboration. It was actually really fun and easy, but it didn't exactly feel right. And so I sort of would reject it. It wasn't exactly me writing my own songs. But I got to a point where I was like, I just need to write, you Uh know? It's okay. I listen to so much music that people have collaborated on. I can come back to writing by myself more. It's really, it's okay. Like, just don't be so hard on yourself. Just do this. So I called him and we finally got together. And when Eric and I sat down to write, I was just about to go play a big gay pride parade in Nashville. And I said, you know, I'd really like to write some songs like I'd like to teach the world to Mm -hmm. sing. You know, the kind of songs you get up and everyone's so happy to hear because it brings everyone together and they're all singing. It's not like about a breakup and sitting on a bed or something. You know, (laughs) it becomes a happy anthem. It's a happy anthem. It's anthemic. It's something people can sing together. So we wrote a song called Sing Out. And um, we still have to put it on a record, but it's... um, the course is, it's my parade, so make it great. Blow your horn, throw confetti, celebrate. You can march, you can dance. Every moment is your chance to be yourself and sing out. And then has a whole la-la-la section that anyone in any country can sing. But it was very, you positive. know, it's, it's positive awesome. and you can sing it. And I can get up and sing that mm-hmm. in the middle of so many different events now. And it's very practical, but it feels right. good too, <laughs> Yeah, right? right? To be able to sing something that's positive, not just a popular song about how angry I am or, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But a lot, your music has says. that feel always. Mm. I mean, and even when it might have a darker tone or theme, there is an, a buoyancy to most of it that I feel like. So, you know, that that fits in nicely. Yeah, I've been focusing kind of on that for, I think because since w- when I started getting songs on the radio and had a bigger professional career, mm-hmm. I did get a, invited to do more benefits and songs and I, and political benefits and all kinds of stuff. And it just feels better when you have something that's appropriate as at least one of the three songs that you're going to sing. Yeah. And <clears throat> so. Are you playing mm-hmm. at any Prides this year? I'm not, but I have been singing that, not yet, but okay. I have, I have been singing that song at all kinds of shows and uh-huh. I often end song sets with it, both at kids shows and grown up shows and it, People, even if they haven't heard it before, they kind of like walk slowly towards the stage, yeah. you know, with their That's a good proverbial candles, you know, just sort of like yeah. singing together at an end of a uh-huh. Peanuts uh-huh. gang yeah. Christmas special or something. <laughs> um, but it, awesome. it brings people together. And, you know, when you play live a lot, you start feeling, I start feeling a difference with both of my kids' music and grown-up music. There are certain songs that are great live songs, mm-hmm. certain songs that are fun to listen to on the recordings. There, there's just different kinds of songs you need. And as a live performer, you're there. You you know, you want things to feel like they're connecting and working in that mm-hmm. moment. And sometimes it's nice to have broad, big songs. And sometimes it's it, it usually is a good idea to have those. Yeah. You know? Was there someone in your life who did for you what you've done for Eric Lumiere? <laughs> like, oh. did you have a moment like that? Or did you like... Uh. Ever try to like reach somebody well, who he actually some listens to you? He had some success. Su- su- he had before he has, you. Yeah, he had he uh, 
he writes these beautiful melodic songs and he had had some success in Europe with uh-huh. um, people doing dance remix. Like he's got really big hits now and he's worked with a lot of great people. But he was, I think, surprised that I called him out of the blue. Right. Uh, like did you ever take a chance when you were struggling? To, like, oh, I took every chance. To... I took, I've taken every chance as a musician. <laughs> in fact, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I was listening to Suzanne Vega's interview that mm-hmm. she did with you guys um, and – I was thinking, it's so funny because when I was in high school, I was already writing music and making recordings on cassette tapes for friends. They wanted recordings of my songs. Uh-huh. And and it really, really started happening after I did this summer acting program with a lot of folks from the East Coast. I'm from Texas. Mm-hmm. And there were all these East Coast people and New York people. And um, they would come to my dorm room in London and they'd say, oh, pl- you know, play us some of your songs. Oh, you should record that. And I'd make little tape recording, tape recorder recordings of them. And... At one point, my friend Jenny Weiner, who lives here in New York, she said, um, she told me after the fact, like after London, she's like, you really need to listen to this woman. You sound a lot like her, and she sounds a lot like you. And she told me to listen to Suzanne Vega and and got her album. And I said, oh, my gosh. Especially in my (laughs) earlier days, I was even more hushed and probably more spoken and hushed. And not that Suzanne Vega is always hushed and spoken, but there is a quality that's mm-hmm. spoken. Yeah. It sounds like her voice, you know, yeah. which is her speaking voice. And I was like, oh, my God, it kind of does. This is really weird, you know. <laughs> is um, that encouraging or discouraging? It was encouraging. Okay. I mean, I felt so unique. But then I heard her and I was like, I guess I'm not 100% unique. Uh, but that but be it's, successful. It's, it's there. And that's so <laughs> yeah. cool, you know. And, uh, and so later when I was in college and I had a singing group with my friend Elizabeth Mitchell, we had a group called Liz and Lisa, and we were mm-hmm. like, popular on campus and you know people were would write us fan notes and we'd make records I think Suzanne Vega came to play in Providence where I went to Brown and Suzanne Vega I think she was playing in Providence not at maybe she was playing at Brown I don't remember but I made a mixtape for her of like all these songs we had recorded and our own original songs and you know probably one of her songs I think we used to do uh actually I don't know which song of hers we used to do but I gave her, you know, my, our song, her, her song and, you know, and in retrospect, you just don't do that to a musician, but we <laughs> thought that's what you're supposed to do. You really give one of the best demo tapes someone ever gave me uh-huh. was three or four songs. And it was just one song that faded into the next. Like you could listen to all five songs in about two minutes or less, that's smart. but it really gave me a taste of what yeah, they yeah. sounded like. Right. And it's. As a musician, especially when I was in college, that would have been horrifying. Like, yeah. of course you would listen to the whole songs and really <laughs> yeah, take it so all precious, in. Yeah, yeah you're, everything is so important, but... Well, I heard you became so attuned to what would work that, like, you, you were very aware of even how much space to leave on a mixtape so that when you would... Or a, on a demo tape so when you'd flip it over... Yeah, well, that... Would, yeah. You know, like... Well, no, everybody knew back in the day that when you made a, uh, an, a cassette tape, which is what we all made back in the 80s, and even early 90s, you would uh, make the first side longer so that when you flipped it over, the music would start at the beginning. Whereas if the first side was too short, when you flipped it over, you'd have to rewind mm. yeah. to get to the beginning of the second side. So it was just something everyone knew, but you yeah. were using it as a yeah, tool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean so hustling cassette tapes was... It's what we do. Was what you would do. And so yeah. it's, but so now do you feel like it's a pay it forward situation where if someone does give you a demo? Oh, yeah. I feel like I need, I feel like it's very important. Well, A, I might miss something if I don't listen to to people's records. B, I was that person. I am, you know, I think of, I always, I, th- I think of myself when I was younger all the time, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I, I did get a lot of 
big breaks by, or what felt like big breaks at the time for opening for other acts. In Dallas, when I went home from college, I got to open for Edie Brickell. Uh Um, They were called the New Bohemians at the time, but it was Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Uh Um, I don't know if she booked that show, but it was a big deal because they were a popular band in Texas before they became a national band. Uh Was this after Brown or before? This was during Brown. Yeah, this was during Brown. I was thinking if it was in high school. I knew Edie Brickell in high school. I don't think I opened for a band in high school, though. How did you know Edie Brickell in high school? Edie Brickell's art teacher and advisor at school was my best friend's mom. Oh, wow. So Edie worked at, like, the cool movie theater. She worked at the record store. And we knew her. She was, like, a cool student of uh-huh. my friend's mom. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I think it, it means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I try to listen to other people's music because, to me, it meant a lot. I opened for the band The Samples, which is sort of a jam band from Colorado, um, I had opportunities. I got, we got to open for Mary Chapin Carpenter at Brown when she came and played in this huge arena. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it, it's amazing, you know, for people to have the guts to give someone a CD right. or a tape. I do my best to listen to whatever I can. Right. But I can't listen to everything. It's hard because I just don't have time. <laughs> of course. Um, well, yeah. and I, I apologize if you're tired of telling the story, but we are at Billboard and you do have the distinction of being yes. the first unsigned artist to ever have a number one on the Hot 100 Ooh. chart. Let's yeah. say. So cool. And I feel like that also happened in a very organic way for you, right? That you got on that yeah. soundtrack? It was very, it's it's funny because when it happened, it seemed all very normal and natural. In yeah. retrospect, I realized it was really unusual because yeah. things that you think are going to happen almost never happen. Right. I mean, it's great that, that, you know, I live in Los Angeles now where uh-huh. I think one of the reasons Los Angeles is so great is you always think there's like a rainbow. For some reason, even, you know, you're constantly getting slammed down and just people tell you no all the time. And you hear that when you go to career counseling uh-huh. festivals, like, be, you know, beware, everyone's going to tell you no. But they right. do. Everybody says no. There's just a gajillion no's. It's Versus all no's. New York. I mean, New York is the it's same. All but no's. It's all no's. Everybody tells you no all right. the time. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. No, you're never going to, this is never going to happen. It's unusual. It will never happen. Uh-huh. It, and, and with this, with, um, the song stay, I graduated from Brown. I was already felt like I was having a successful music career. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Liz and I went straight from playing even while we were at Brown, we had record company interest. Um, there was somebody who was interested from EMI Records. Did that come from a show that they saw you at, or was it giving out demos as well? It was everything. We played at, like, new music seminars, and we played—I don't know if we were doing that in college, but we were playing concerts. It was the and hustle. We, you were hustling. Yeah, we were making records. Yeah. We were making cassette tapes, and we were playing concerts in L.A., Providence, Boston, New York. We'd come to New York and play at the Bitter End. Mm-hmm. We had friends who had friends, and one of our friends knew somebody was sort of starting to he- kind of help us out in a management capacity— you know, helping connect us with people. And one of the people she knew knew someone else and they worked at EMI records. Um, and his, this guy, John Gordon, uh, Rob Gordon and Rob was a great source of information about the record industry and and the music business and how it all worked. Mm -hmm. And he's very independent. He actually has his own music, um, record company called war. What are records in Colorado still? And he's very independent and he looked at things in a very independent way. But I also thought of getting a record deal as being like, that was getting a job out of college. Like yeah. you get a record deal. Anyway, in college, Rob was interested. He got his, he was going to have his boss come see us or he did have his boss come see us. His boss was Ron Fair, who ran at EMI Records. And Rob either got fired the day that Rob, that 
Rob either got fired the same day that his boss was supposed to come see us or his boss came see us and he didn't want to sign us or whatever, Mm -hmm. my friend Liz and I. But anyway, there was interest. It made us feel like, wow, this is actually happening. We're actually playing the bitter end, like major places Uh and having full houses of people because we had such a great support system from Brown and their friends and the word had gotten out and people came to listen to us. So it was, things always seemed like they were moving forward. And then Liz and I went our own separate ways as far as our bands. She and her husband, Dan, um, started the band Ida, mm-hmm. which is a really popular indie band. And um, now Liz also does a lot of kids' music, lots of beautiful records. And was that an <clears throat> amicable, just like a mutual separation? It was a mutual separation, yeah. we I think we just had different ideas about where we wanted to go. And she was you know, in a relationship with her husband, and they were making this beautiful music, and they were kind of going more of an indie route. Mm-hmm. And I think I was just more, you know... Commercial. Like, I, was, I want that I, record deal. I was like, yeah. I need a record deal. Right. I need to get a job. Yeah. You know, and I think Liz was kind of like, you know, she's just more like organic and natural and yeah. real. And yeah. I'm more like, let me put on my eyelashes. <laughs> we're going on stage. Yeah. You know, I'm from Dallas. And that's so, how you were out of the gate, out of college. Yeah, and I was like that in college as well. I don't know. It's just, but but we made beautiful music together. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but I think we just had sort of a different idea of what directions we were going, mm-hmm. and it was time to go our ways. And But anyway, Eth, uh, moving to New York, our friend, we were friends with Josh, well, we are friends with Josh Hamilton, who's an actor, mm-hmm. who went to Brown, and Josh had just been in a movie with Ethan, they he did the movie Alive, oh, which is right. all these guys who are on a soccer team and they die in a plane or they crash. Alive was the most terrifying it's, movie of my childhood. Yeah, me too. Like, it scares me You weren't me allowed so to watch it, but you would kind of watch it when it was on TV, but then you get too afraid and you turn it off it's and horrible. then you just like thought about it all the time. Yeah, this plane in Col- it's a plane um, and they're going it's to the Columbia. It's a cannibal movie. Okay. Yeah, somebody eats part of in the snow. It's terrifying. terrible. They crash and... Uh, that was based on a real story. It was based on a real story yeah. and, and every time I'm on a plane with like a sports team I'm like we're gonna crash this is terrible yeah it's like Jaws for every flying plane, over yeah. snowy terrain every plane I get teams. on I think I'm gonna yeah. crash it's not a good ha- oh, no. it's not a good thought for somebody who travels a lot yeah. it's terrible so anyway Ethan had just been in this movie Alive uh-huh. um, and they were he just was friends with all these actor boys because it was all these boys and Ileana Douglas. And then he had also been <laughs> oh, in, you know, so a few cool. years earlier, had been in Dead Poet Society, which, again, with a ton of boys. Right. Um, and I was a huge fan of that movie. But So I met Ethan, and that was really cool because, you know, I was a big fan of his. I loved Dead Poet so much when I saw it. I went to visit my brother at Harvard. We went to go see the movie in the square, and it was so good. We went back the next night and saw it again. You know, it was cool. just amazing yeah. um, and Where depressing. Where were you at the time? In New York? Yeah. Uh, I was living downtown. Um, I just moved from Bowery and Bond, which was near Seabees. It was not the best area at the time in the East Village. Actually, it was funny. When I moved to New York, I lived with Liz's family uh, on the Upper East Side in this crazy townhouse. Like, we all had our own bathrooms, and it was marble and elevators and... You know, the people who moved into the apartment after us was Mariah Carey. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, It was crazy. (laughs) Uh, But after that, I moved to Bowery and Bond, which was down in the East Village. Um, And it was like the public restroom for the neighborhood. (laughs) Uh, The door was. But then after that, I went back to school. I decided my, I made it, my parents said they would help support me a little bit if I went back to school. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? That's a good idea because I've been working in you know, room service yeah. at a, at a boutique hotel. Deal, so. yeah, it's, it's only been like two years after college right. and I'm like getting desperate. You, you know? studied literature. You did not I studied study literature. music. I didn't study music, although I did tons of music classes Obviously. and I took 
recording classes where we recorded our own music and we critiqued each other's music. It's uh-huh. kind of like the best of all worlds because we had right. great supportive audience, fan base of, of friends and fans and Brown, you know, our college students who would just pack the house every time we would play. Mm-hmm. And then we were in music classes with all these other musicians who are now a lot of them professional musicians who, you know, score the movies we listen, we watch like mm-hmm. Marco Beltrami and Duncan Sheik. And, mm-hmm. you know, these were all our classmates and it was a very high standard of... Like songwriting and musicianships yeah. and yeah. musicianship, not musicianships. <laughs> and, um, and we would critique each other's music in these classes. And, but anyway, uh, after college, yeah, I hadn't gotten a record deal and I was, you know, working at hold everything, which is a pottery barn owned store, an organization store and, you know, just doing different day jobs and temping. I did a lot of temp work, which is great because often when you're a temp worker, and you can type pretty fast. You get really good temp work for high-level executives who are on vacation <laughs> and their secretaries are on vacation. There is uh, whatever, the administrative assistants are yeah. on yeah. vacation. So you're sitting in a gorgeous office overlooking Central Park, sort of randomly doing mail. Yeah. And yeah. I don't even know what. And thinking um, of lyrics. And- thinking of lyrics <laughs> right. and making flyers on the Xerox copy machines and like being awake way earlier than a musician should ever be awake <laughs> yeah. wearing an Ann Taylor suit. But <laughs> Drinking that free coffee. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. drinking coffee and using Losing free, no like, supplies. white paper. Right. They gave me office supplies. They gave me office supplies. Because that's the work of it. That was the promotion. That was, you know, you could make oh, yeah. phone calls and mm-hmm. yeah, it was great. you're not sending emails. You're, yeah. you're just And usually if you were hired at that job, your boss was out of town. Right. right. So I, I did do one job. Actually, the last temp job I had was at Ernst & Young. And I did it, I feel like, for a few months. I, my, I don't know if my sense of time is exactly right, but it felt like I was there. I was at Scholastic for a while, which was so cool. I got all these kids' books, and <laughs> it was just so cool. It was before computers, so I would hand-deliver things. Uh-huh. And, you know, they weren't using computers a lot for mass emails. And I got to help order the office supplies. And it was just really colorful and wonderful, and I love Scholastic books. And then after that, Ernst & Young, which was like office. Yeah. And they... I was working in the real estate department making reports. I don't even know what I was doing. They had me doing things that I wasn't qualified to do. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I met Ethan Hawke through another actor. And it was awesome. It was a couple of years after, you know, it was like right after college. Mm-hmm. We all, it was a great community. It was Ethan and Ethan had friends like John Mark Sherman, who's a playwright and, um, you know, there were actors and, and musicians. My our friend Jesse Harris who's, and Rebecca Martin, they had a group uh-huh. called Blue. Jesse ended up writing all like a lot of those huge hits for Nora Jones. Mm. And uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My friend Juan Patino who started producing my records. And Where were you in the band life? Were you a solo artist or were you with well, I became Nine a stories? solo artist. Okay. I was a solo artist, but Nine Stories was a band name Liz Mitchell and I came up with when we played with our band. Because as a musician early on, when you used your own names, like even Liz and Lisa, it sounded like an acoustic folk duo. Mm-hmm. Now we were an acoustic duo, but we weren't a folk duo. We yeah. were just playing songs, like if Elvis Costello took his band away or something. You know, right. like, yeah. there was a lot of variety, and yeah. it was we were like singer songwriters. We uh-huh. weren't folk, you know. Yeah. Um, it, there were a lot of harmonies, but there was a lot of. Uh, stigma attached to that that we didn't feel connected to right. like her favorite musician was Bruce Springsteen and Joni Mitchell and I liked uh Led Zeppelin and right. we liked Prince and we li- mm-hmm. I liked Elvis Costello and right. it's hard the police that. and David Bowie so why weren't they folk with an acoustic guitar right right yeah it's hard without the groove if you have two acoustic guitars and voices yeah. For people to yeah. sort of understand the vibe, just, I guess. You see two like girls on a guitar and right. you're like, oh, you're folk. Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm, I'm going to keep us on task with this story, though. Oh, yeah. So I'm so, buttoning you up over yeah, there. Yeah, the and Nine Stories was the name <laughs> of the band we came up with, which is J.D. Salinger. 
idea. Yeah. And it just, which is a whole other story. But anyway, I kept the band Nine Stories, the name band Nine Stories. And and again, I would try to sort of promote myself as Nine Stories or Lisa Loeb in Nine Stories. Mm. So people would have the idea that it's a band sound, that there's going to be a lot of variety in the sound that you're going to hear. It's not going to be super folky. Right. <clears throat> so, so you're palling around the East Village. Yeah, we're all palling around the, <laughs> the West Village. Actually, I was living right near NYU. Okay. Oh, so I had gone back to school at NYU studying psychology. Oh, wow. Because I was like, yeah, it, my parents are right. You know, if I don't become a professional musician, it would be much more fun to be like a psychologist or, <laughs> yeah. or study the brain right. or, you know. So this was grad school? Yeah, it was grad okay. school. So was so, that a hard, sad kind of feeling to say, I might not, this might not work out? No, I think because I secretly felt like, you know, this is already, ha- no, that's a good question. I, I secretly felt like this is already happening. So on one hand, I was sort of pacifying my parents, but I was actually pacifying myself as well because I didn't want to be selling padded hangers and lucite boxes and waking up at ungodly hours. Because even when I did temp work, I get so, in- I'm so involved in being part of the team and doing a good job. You know, I'm kind of like very, I'm, I'm a type B, but with a very hard type A lining. Mm-hmm. Like I get very right. involved. You know, I'm not like my Harvard friends who are very type A. <laughs> I'm like a brown student, but I'm very involved. And I was like, if I'm going to put my heart into this, you know, as a musician, I do have time to be in school or having another job. You know, and I tell musicians that today, you don't quit every job. You know, like jobs are important. They help or school or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You have to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a full life. And being a musician is really hard. You know, being a musician back in the early 90s, we were doing what everybody did, making flyers, calling your friends to come to shows, hand writing out postcards to hundreds of people to send to sh- and hand post. You had to put this, the stamp on by hand. They didn't even have machines you could use yeah. or, you know, print it on your computer. It was just very tedious, writing your songs, recording, figuring out where you're going to record, right. you know, making cassette tapes and selling them. It was, you know, down no in the pavement. Media, right. Which I, mean, I wonder, no social media. that makes it harder. But in a way, I wonder if it also makes it easier because it's like only the select few that are really hustling are going to be noticed. Whereas yeah. you can be a little bit lazier right. with social media. You had to like put out, you people. had to make a tape and then physically hand it to people. Yeah. Hand it to people, which <laughs> you is, just you know, and like have a package and write the address on it. Mm-hmm. And now I was lucky again, my friend Rob Gordon, for example, said, you need to find an assistant. You need to find somebody who can help you mm-hmm. with some of these tasks because you need to continue writing your music and, and recording your music and, and I'm, I love the music business. I mean, I don't love the music business, but I like the business of music and marketing. And I have that part of me that I love thinking of new ideas and how are we going to get the music out there? And, yeah. you know, as well as the complete other side of me, which is I'm writing songs, hmm, you know, like right, they're very just, different. They're, they're very they're different places, but I, I'm inspired by both of them. So I found my friend Amy, who is running Ethan Hawke's theater company. She helped me with a lot of these things like she started helping me with the flyers and the you know, some of the, the administrative tasks and, and which was super helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we like put up posters and yeah. things like that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. Yeah. so anyway, I was I was going to NYU taking a couple of classes. Midway through, ta- you know, a year in or so, halfway through a year, I realized, you know what? If I'm going to school, this is so interesting and awesome. I should have studied psychology in college instead of literature, complet, you know, <laughs> Ulysses and Faulkner and uh, all those things that are just <laughs> Joyce. That's just not helpful in life. Yes, I can analyze text. you how to think. I know, but I I was already thinking in high school. We (laughs) learned how to analyze texts in high school, like in Spanish class. It was amazing. But, you know, uh, so I was going to NYU and I I loved it. And I thought, wow, this would be a really cool job at some point. But music is taking too much time. I can't do this and go to school. So I did live near NYU in one of those high rises. I kept going from like beautiful apartment to kind of <laughs> weird, random, like my the loft I was living in with five other guys in the Bowery. And then beautiful high rise cookie cutter apartment near NYU, uh-huh. uh, which was across the street from Ethan Hawke, who was living on Waverly Place in one of those cool, you know, more walk up apartments with those black iron painted windows, old timey. Yeah. But, you know, you literally, we'd shout up the window to each other like, hey, you know, want to go get brunch? What are you doing? And we'd go get brunch down the street, you know. And Did that make you feel like I'm in some sort of circle that's yeah, no, leading me somewhere? It really was. Point. I felt like I was, it, it was because we were all, it was funny because it was this quote unquote slacker generation, right. Generation X. Right. And here was Ethan about to make this movie about Generation X. And yet these were the most hardworking people I knew, uh, you know, Robert Sean Leonard, Ethan Hawke, mm-hmm. John Sherman, Pete Dinklage was one of our gang, you know, oh, really? I'm sure I'm leaving. And Gordon Greenberg, who makes musicals and, you know, all these very successful, Callista Flockhart was in the wow. theater company. And uh, what were some of the, the big credits to your career at that point as a musician? I had played, I got to play for Z100 down at the tr- uh, hey. tra- uh, World Trade Center. <laughs> Which was big, like doing something yeah. for a big radio station, yeah. um, playing at the new music festival, playing at South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. Record companies were interested. People were, I had demo deals with record companies. Yeah. So you where felt they were the momentum. Paying me to do things. I played at CBGB's. I was playing at, um, at uh, what is that place called that we all played? Like uh, Blues Traveler and Joan Osborne. And we all played at, a, um, it was more of the groovy jam band place. Oh my God, my brain. Is it still around? No, no. but we were all playing there. You know, you, we were in, all in great circles. And yeah. Jeff Buckley and people were getting mm. deals. And, you know, the, the A&R people were interested in bringing their people. And, and it was just sort of all happening. The the crowds were there. There uh-huh. were lots of people showing up and yeah. people buying tapes and CDs. And people from other cities were writing notes to me. And it just <laughs> felt like, you know, this is really happening. Yeah. And even in college, Liz and I made a demo with one of Suzanne Vega's guitar players and her bass player played on our demo. And it sounded like... It was real, and re- people were really showing up. So, yes, yeah. it felt sad, like, well, I'm, this might not happen, but it didn't feel like that. Uh-huh. Right. It felt more like, well, sure, I'll go back to college. It's like a bonus. Right. Like, I'll go back to grad <laughs> right. school. I get to learn things. Yeah. Did and, money follow with <clears throat> these types of gigs? This yeah, level? like the CB's gallery paid really well. I think uh-huh. they paid you the door, which is 
a big deal at the time. I played at this place called Cottonwood Cafe where they'd pay you $75, which was a lot, <laughs> and they'd feed you. And all your friends could come for free. They didn't have to buy anything, okay, big. which was big. And yeah. then, you know, Tatum O'Neill would come see me play. And there were interesting people in the audience uh-huh. and people who knew people, and it just felt like, you know, things were happening. Yeah. And this was only a couple years out of college. Mm. So it just felt like, I think this is happening. I'm sure in the back of my head I was always like, I had the voice of my parents, like, if this isn't going anywhere, you need to move on. <laughs> mm-hmm. But things kept happening. Yeah. Had you yeah. made the purple tape by mm. this point when you were living across from Ethan? I made the purple tape, I think, in 1991, like a year after college. Right. Because I'd been singing with Liz for so many years that I thought, you know, I need, and it's funny, I heard Joan Osborne, I've been listening to her show, Joan Osborne saying, yeah, we all made cassette tapes because uh-huh. people wanted to buy your music, you know? And it was important to have a calling card, to have music that sounded like you, that you could share. And although I saw myself as being more of a part of a band, for myself, I needed to hear myself singing my songs. Liz had sung Mm -hmm. a lot of my songs and Mm -hmm. I still was singing some of the songs that, a lot of the songs that we did together that I had written. I needed to get used to myself being the lead singer instead of more of the harmony singer. Mm -hmm. I needed to get more and more confident with that emotionally. I think on stage, physically, I seemed confident, but I emotionally needed to get used to that. You know, I felt like Simon and Garfunkel, we've broken up, and I'm like by myself now. Um, But, you know, I needed to get used to that and feel confident with that and have something to sell. So I made that in around 1991. and uh, So you were ready for people to swoop you up. Yeah. Okay, so how did Stay end up on Reality Bites? So I was playing playing concerts, and, you know, all of our friends, everybody would come to see me play. We'd go see our other friends play. And and I was doing music for Ethan's theater company. I wrote music for some of his plays. Uh And um, Ethan asked for a copy of the song Stay. Stay was one of the songs that I played live as well as well as like a bunch of other songs. And that was a song that people just would request a lot. I remember again, Tatum O'Neill said, oh, will you play the song Stay? You know, like. So it was already like a locally famous song. It was kind of song. like a little bit of a song as well as a couple of other songs that were kind of popular. Yeah. And in, who did at you least say you wrote that for? I wrote that. Well, at the time, my friend Jeff Cohen, who is working at BMI, which is a music, uh, they collect music for you. When, I mean, they collect money for you when your songs are played on the radio. Okay. And that was a place where you didn't have to get signed, like somebody sign you. You just sort of signed up for it. Mm-hmm. You would sign up for BMI or ASCAP or CSAC, mostly BMI or ASCAP. And it was a great way to be a part of the music industry. They they had events, the singer-songwriter circles in the round. Mm-hmm. At the Bitter End, I played at the Bitter End a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were part of like a professional community. And again, that was another thing that made me feel like things are happening. Yeah. Um, but Jeff told me, BMI also might tell you that like certain acts are looking for songs for their records. Okay. And I had never written songs for other people, but I heard Daryl Hall was looking for music. And I thought, oh my was gosh. Was he solo then? I think he was doing a solo record. Okay. And I loved all the classic, you know, they call it blue eyed soul. Uh huh. Um, you know, these white guys from Philly singing this R&B. Yeah. And Dara's laughing because our first I guest on the show about is Susan Tedeschi. Oh, Susan. <laughs> yeah, I heard yeah. Susan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was talking about that. Yeah, I yeah. know. It, it's true, though, but it's... it's. Uh, but I love Daryl Hall and John Oates, and I loved, you know, Sarah Smile and Rich Girl, all the yes, things that have these kind so of good. blues, or not blues, they're more like R&B grooves with these beautiful melodies. Mm-hmm. So I started writing something with a little groove uh, chords that went back and forth. And um, I thought, oh, I'll get this to Daryl Hall. Of course, that opportunity didn't happen. Like, most things don't. So I just continued 
writing the song. And at the time, I was at Berkeley Music School going to summer school. Okay. I saw that you went there. I went there the summer after oh, I you went did? to college. You went, did and you it go to college like, there? I went to college at BU at mm. Boston University. And then the windiest school around. <laughs> and then I stayed the summer after I graduated to go to the Berkeley yes. summer session changed my life it was like the most joyful experience it was it was, for me it was a little scary because my brother had been there when he was a teenager when you're supposed to go yeah, to yeah. Berkeley summer school yeah. I, I was like the we're, you know I was like three years out of college I think and I was again I'm always looking for these schooled opportunities to become more organized and to do more of the thing that I want to do and for me Berkeley music school was I think I've said this before, but it was like the, being the eighth grade boy that I never was, who sits in their room and like <laughs> plays guitar for hours and hours and hours. I was playing guitar a lot when I was in eighth grade, but I was doing all these other things. I didn't like sit and shut myself up in my room. I wrote songs and I played guitar, but I didn't. I, at Berkeley, you could sit in a practice room. You kind of had yeah. to. But I was like the grown up with all these teenage kids, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. you know. I wasn't living in the dorms, but I was kind of like. Yeah, grown up. Right. But being in an institution surrounded by music. Oh, is it was just great. Like, yeah, it was, and it was camp. challenging. Yeah. You know? But it was really cool, too, because they would figure out what level you were in all these different areas of music so you could go in and be challenged at your level on ear training or reading or soloing or whatever. So I started, I was finishing writing the song Stay then, and I was busking, although busking in excuse me, busking in Harvard Square, you actually sign up ahead of time and they put you on a calendar and you're playing in front of Aubin Pan. And it's, you know, and I had done that before during college when I went to Harvard Summer School. That's funny. Um, Bougie busking. Yeah, it's, it's bus, you you know, yeah, you had to reserve a spot. But, <laughs> well, I guess that's like the subway in New York now. It is, now you have yeah, to reserve a spot. Yeah. It's like professional. It's, yeah. a, it's right. like under New York. Venue. It's a real program. So, yeah, I had been to Berkeley and that's where I finished writing the song and I was actually living off campus with two other Berkeley students. And one of them was this amazing R&B singer. And she sang like Whitney Houston. It was unbelievable. And I thought, gosh, I should really get her to sing this song. And I asked her to, and she said, no. Whoa. I was like, all right. Okay. You know, I was just like, it'd be so amazing for her to record it. Wow. Um, but so- yeah, so I, I, I wrote the song then. And then I, mm-hmm. and then I had recorded a couple versions of the song as part of my demo deals. One was more of kind of a, a harder rock version. Mm-hmm. I recorded with Kevin Salem. And then the other one I recorded with Juan Patino, who I'd made the acoustic tape with. And our version was the final version. And we recorded it in his apartment on 52nd Street. Um, you know, literally a two-bedroom apartment that we had sort of functioned into a studio. And, um, you know, we loved Steely Dan and clean sounds and yeah. all these different things. And we recorded it with my band, Nine Stories. And... That's the tape. And and so Amy Armstrong, my friend, says, who was helping me with the administrative work and stuff and working with Ethan, she said she remembers giving Ethan the tape. I remember the tape having a couple of my songs and songs by other friends, too. I don't know. And Ethan says that it was just my songs. I don't know. And I had already tried to write songs for Ethan for for the movie, too. Uh Uh-huh. He asked me to take a shot at writing a song called I'm Nothing for the band he plays in in the movie Reality <laughs> Bites. And so did um, Gordon Gano from Violent Femmes and so did Soul Asylum. Crazy. Soul Asylum's version got into the movie. Oh, that's funny. Mine wasn't even really that great of a song. But so he still asked for music and Ben Stiller, all the powers. There was a lot of powers mm-hmm. that be that yeah. put the song into the movie. Okay. But Ethan asked for it. But like the people who put it in the movie, the producer Stacy Cher and Ben Stiller, who was directing it, they were supposed to go see U2 play in 
Ireland and show them the film, but the plane was the, like you two had to cancel that, <laughs> so they stayed in town at the Wetlands. That's the club. I was okay. At. So Ben and Stacy came and see to see me at the Wetlands. Okay. And it was a big show, and they were convinced to like put the song in the movie. Crazy. And then Ron Fair, the A and R man who was at EMI Records, the boss of Rob Gordon, who was interested in me in college, he put my song on the soundtrack. There you at go. At RCA Records. And my colleagues were asking me, and I couldn't answer, which is. Uh, someone at Billboard should know this, and in the charts department, they definitely do. But how do you have a number one song that is not on your own album? Like, where are those numbers? It's a single. It's a number one single. So is it? It's bad timing. I didn't have my own album out. It's so too it's bad. like radio play, radio and play, and people sales. actually buying the single yes. in the record store. Yes, exactly. So it says like reality bites says Lisa Loeb Lisa stay Loeb's from the day. yeah got it okay <laughs> i know it was really it was amazing but it was also unfortunate that we didn't have the entire record recorded yet yeah <laughs> i had a lot of songs that probably could have been released as the record right. but we thought we needed to record the record yeah, right. yeah, yeah. afterwards <laughs> so the record came out like a year later uh-huh but so the song was on it at Sorry. that point? No, Sorry. I was unsigned no. when Stay came out, and when it went to number one, I signed to Geffen Records when it was at number one <laughs> that summer. Okay. and But I have to say, even though it was independent, RCA Records, once the song started getting played on the radio, uh-huh. RCA Records, radio department, uh, they they pushed the record. You know, they yeah, promoted yeah. the record. Right. As my parents would say, they pushed the record. You know, they pushed <laughs> but um, they, they did. They really got into to promoting it, and... Um, I'm still really good friends with with Skip Bishop, who is the head of promotion there for Top 40 mm-hmm. Music. And I think it also helped that Ethan made a video for the song. Right. Yeah. How soon did that happen? In, I don't like, remember. I feel like it was too. like a few months after we had the rights. We had to convince RCA to let us make a video because uh-huh. there were other songs on the roster to be singles from the record. Mm-hmm. And I remember meeting at Pot Belly Stove, which was this great small restaurant on Christ- Christopher Street with Ron Fair, the executive, and our video executive, and Ethan, and Ethan had told me what he wanted the video to be in his apartment. He showed me the, chore- you know, kind of choreography, mapping out how it would be one take, right. and I'd be moving over here and then telling the story and looking at the camera and the whole thing, and and he explained it to the record company, and they said yes. I, I always think they said yes because it was Ethan, and he's like a famous actor, but really the great thing was the concept. It was yeah. so unusual yeah. at the time, and it really stood out, and I think... People love a one take. Uh, one it's take is really so hard, impressive. Yeah. It's, it was really one take, yeah. Amazing. Before we move on to what happens next, because I'm curious what... But just, we can't stay here all night, unfortunately, just to remind you, Dara. Okay, well, okay, but I would and like I to ask this I think they actually, question. like, cut the air off in this library. <laughs> oh, oh, no. no. Okay. People are getting oh, sweaty. Okay, well, you. I have to, I just really want to ask this question. Yes. The moment of creating that riff, or the lyric and the riff that is so instantly recognizable and so loved like so beloved you just start playing those first notes to stay right do you remember that moment can you can you take yourself back and and like relive chills like does that give you a feeling something that gives us a feeling every time we hear it you just hear that i'm not going to try to sing it yeah, but no, no, just no. those notes no it doesn't it doesn't it's really weird what gives me the feel, if if there is a feeling for that song it's the actual ding you know like the little two chords i'm singing like the bass line in a octave up but um it's the and i thought what it felt simple just the chords the groove of the chords it just felt kind of 
<laughs> like modern or something at the time. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't remember that. I do remember from my song Do You Sleep when I was playing that lick and singing over it. I wrote that in college actually. And I remember feeling like, whoa, this is there are some things that I write that I'm like, whoa. But for Stay, there wasn't It wasn't that, that moment. It was more the lick. It was more the lick and the feeling of like, oh, I'm kind of singing this melodic thing over it. And I remember sitting on a mattress in New York City. You know, we like putting our mattresses on the floor um, because it was fun to be close to the floor. I don't there's know no why. room for yeah. a bed frame <laughs> no, or a yeah. headboard in New no, York. It just, felt, it was just comfortable. I like being really close to the floor. It I felt really it modern. sheets, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, yeah, there were like, sheets. Yeah. That's <laughs> gross. like a can know, of no, soda. I'm like, you know, I pounded the pavement, but I'm always like, well, we, we can pay for We can get a hotel. You <laughs> yeah. don't have to sleep on someone's floor. Everyone's like, I slept on a floor. I'm like, why? You know, if you call a hotel, you can get a really good rate. Right. And, you know, you can, I'm always like, sort of grown up and mature and trying to figure out like a grown up approach about those kind of logistics. Are you romantic about the music industry from that time? No, not at all. I'm not romantic about the music industry. I like that. Well, you don't seem to have been stymied by the changes in the industry. Um, I don't, you might feel differently. Well, this is the deal. I, again, early on, I had a lot of advice from a lot of people and I loved learning about the music business and, and I knew from early on when you get a record deal, yes, it is like getting a job because you can tell your parents, oh, I've got a record deal. Right. And it feels like a next big step. But I knew it wasn't the end. And I knew it was – I knew that that wasn't all there was. And when they gave you money for a record, you put a lot of it away. You're very conservative. You don't buy some fancy car. You That's the money that you're living on. You get health insurance. You know, I knew all these kind of things that are really boring but but create a very solid – consistent life. And you always try to figure out how to market yourself. Early on, I realized even when there might be a publicist at the record company, you really are, it's, it behooves you to do a lot of the work yourself mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. or speak up. You know, it was funny at Geffen Records, they'd always joke that in Dallas, we had the best promotion because Edie Brickell's family was there and my family was there. <laughs> and and people would walk into the record PRT. stores and say, where's the uh, posters? <laughs> you know, yeah. so, you know, you I, I, I used to be disillusioned and say, why is my mom telling us the posters are not up? That's how it works. Yep. Yeah. You know, there's a huge street team and your record company and there's moms and cousins and friends yeah. and fans. And it's very great. I learned early on it has to be very grassroots. What I am stymied by, and I think everybody is, is the whole uh, digital music issue yeah. because – we're still up against the same issues marketing your music. There's so much out there. Right. You still have to market your music. It's not like, oh, you could just put it out. Mm-hmm. You still have to guide people towards your music. A lot of people do their own social media. I do mm-hmm. a lot of my social media, but I also delegate it as well to people because I have a whole other life. I am not on my Twitter right. every second. I am right. more when I'm on the road without my kids yeah. and stuff. <laughs> but I, I, there's a separation between personal and public and a sort of a crossover where you, it's a gray area Mm -hmm. and you still have to do a lot of marketing, which still costs money, but there's no budgets. You still have to do a lot of promo and there's no, and there's so many outlets that you try to choose the best ones. Like talking with you guys, this is really cool. And like you have other, I'm in great company with all the other artists you've been on and the experience itself is a good one. So that's quality and people (laughs) listen to it. No, but you know, you like there are, there are other things that make success other than just sales. Right. That being said, you know, two out of the four ways musicians make money, boop, gone. Yeah. Don't don't sell records anymore. Don't really get airplay. Mm-hmm. And so trying to make the best of that is, it's it's not what we all planned. It's like, you know, having a retirement fund that like, oh, it went oh, away. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. well. You know, so it's, it's very strange. 
you know, luckily for me, I have a lot of different things I'm interested in. So I have different sort of elements of my business and what I mm-hmm. enjoy doing. Yeah. And the situation with Amazon seems smart. I've been working with Amazon a lot, putting out records exclusively. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard because uh, people say, but it's not on iTunes. I'm like, yeah, but it's on Amazon. Right. And I'm like, <laughs> I go to Amazon multiple times a day to buy right. things yeah. as a mom, as a human. Um, and the more people know that music is available there. And if you're a Prime member, you can get it for free. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I still sell actual CDs at my shows, although who knows how long I'll be doing that for because... Yeah. Kids, right. I know, like to look at CDs, but it's, you know, there's well, different logistics. Well, we do vinyl as well, but <laughs> vinyl's hard to vinyl. travel with. It's it's heavy. Yep. It warps. Yep. Yeah. It sells well, though. <laughs> that's good. Um, all right. Let's talk about Cafe Carlisle. Oh, yeah. Cafe Carlisle. that's why we have snag you here in yes, New York. Our favorite place to go. It is our, yeah. On a date. Our little night. date spot. Um, so yeah. June 6th to the 17th. Yes. Is when you'll be there. Playing beautiful songs over people's steak and mashed potatoes. I know, yeah, such a like really setting. good steak and mashed potatoes. Yeah. I don't mean <laughs> that in a demeaning way. I actually wrote. Um, I wrote. Uh, you know, I do mailers to my fans and and friends and fans. And I wrote about how I was doing Cafe Carlisle, and I wrote that you know, and you can have things like filet mignon and. That's right. You know, lobster bisque uh-huh. and flourless chocolate cake. And In fact, you will be forced wine. to yeah. eat. I said you will be forced to eat and drink. Yeah. yeah. But it is, it's guaranteed good time. It's funny when I was here uh, playing in New York City, starting out, you know, the Upper East Side was really far away, even though I did start out living on the Upper East Side. But to, to play up there for grownups, yeah. you know, it was like we're Broadway singers and cabaret singers. And, yeah, it's not for lazy you know, Gen X singer songwriters. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so, and and I always love the idea and the actuality of playing at CBGBs or the Wetlands and playing with my band. And, yeah. and little by little through the years, part of it logistics because it's it's easy for me. And part of it, I, artistically, I've enjoyed it. I've honed it down. So I'm mostly just playing me with a guitar lately. Uh-huh. I do sometimes like when a new record comes out, I'll play. I'll bring another guitar player who sings so that we can have more variety and I love guitar solos and harmonies or if I go to Japan I'll play with a band you know there's certain situations I'll play with a band but in general it just I play with a guitar and that way all the sets I play can be different and I tell stories and Mm -hmm. more and more I just really enjoy an intimate crowd or a quiet crowd that's set up for listening you know rows of seats theaters dinner theaters so this is kind of the culmination of that it's like Back in New York City at a place where grown-ups listen. And I am a grown-up. There you go. I can't believe it. You did it. it. You made it. I am a grown-up. And, (laughs) you know, I still feel a little bit like a little kid at the grown-ups dinner party when I'm there. Um, It's probably harder when you have kids to feel that way. (laughs) Well, if they're not around, I feel more like a kid. When they're around, I am a (laughs) grown-up. But it's it's sort of a really – it actually is a really great – I feel like it's going to be a really good place to play. And for the audience to be able to listen. And I like playing requests from the audience. I always put a big section. You're going to take requests? Yeah, I usually put a a nice chunk in there for requests. Because, again, like I think of myself, I was such a huge music fan growing up. I went to so many concerts. I would stand in line for people's autographs. I would read, you know, books about David Bowie. And, you know, we didn't have the internet. So just finding a magazine clip about the police (laughs) or whatever was such a big deal, you know, learning about someone's life and to hear songs that, they wouldn't typically play in concert. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And so to actually 
hear a fan say, oh, will you play this song? You know, yeah. this deep track. Yeah, yeah. I, track. I will try yeah. my best. I'm still learning some of my own songs because I have so many <laughs> songs that. to choose I from. I have that. to learn it's it. So it's so fun. It's kind okay, of... well, Dara and I are going to work on our requests and yes. we'll send them yes. to you ahead of time so you can make sure you have them down. Mm-hmm. We'll and there'll be Twitter and all that stuff. But yeah, I'm excited to play there. I am cool. looking forward to seeing a lot of people. And what I also enjoy and I've noticed a lot from concerts is usually – Half the people are there to see me and half of them are brought by the person who's there to see me. Yeah. But <laughs> but usually after the show when I'm signing autographs, which uh-huh. I normally do, we'll see if I'll, I'll do that at the Carlisle, uh-huh. um, the, the other half said, oh, you know, that was – I get sort of the best <laughs> of both world, worlds. I get the feeling I got when I started out in New York and you mm-hmm. could see the discovery and you could feel yeah. that in the audience. The pleasant surprise. But then, yeah, but then also the – the sort of already people who are fans. Yeah, you're satisfied. Listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it's a great balance of both. Awesome. Very nice. exciting. And then I have to ask you about the other thing that uh, you had to talk about today or that was suggested we could talk about, which is Lisa Loeb eyewear. Oh, yes. Which is amazing. I did not know that it existed. Yes. And I when do. I heard it, I was like, so hell yes, of course. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. Of like, course. so smart yeah. for her to do well, that. It's a good topic for a music podcast because when I first started out in New York and started doing interviews, Uh even in college, people knew me for my glasses, even in high school. But when I became, you know, on the charts in the public eye Uh and all that, I would sit down for a really serious interview. You know, I thought, and they'd say, so tell me about your glasses. (laughs) And I was so offended. I'm like, are you serious? You're talking to me about my glasses? And I was already a little on edge because when I made the Stay video, I wasn't playing guitar and my band wasn't in the the video. And that was a really big deal for me. Mm -hmm. We actually shot the video Stay with, me and my guitar and my band, just in case. We didn't use wow. it because the better artistic vision was the one-take video and me singing. But I felt like, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually a musician. Like, I've been playing guitar. I've been writing since I was six years old. I've been playing guitar since I was, you know, 13 and writing songs my whole life and performing. Why are we talking about yeah. my glasses? And it took me years to realize I... I one of the things I love about Elton John, David Bowie, some of my huge heroes, it's their style. Yeah. It's the police's blonde hair. I'm really excited about that. Yep. It doesn't demean their music. It doesn't make me feel upset about it. I like, you know, I think Elvis Costello wore creepers at some point. They're really cool. <laughs> but I listen to their music. Uh-huh. So finally I realized I could do both. You can embrace it. And my in, glasses, are, it's a huge hobby of mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I love going into stores and looking for glasses. So when I had an opportunity to start my own eyewear line, uh-huh. I, I jumped on it and I said, yeah, I really want to do this. You know, this would be a great thing. I could help design glasses, work with professionals, learn more about the business. Yeah. And people could have glasses like mine when they come up to me all the time and say, I'm wearing your glasses. Yeah. And I could say, well, let me help you find some that are even cuter. Because <laughs> I love finding the right glasses that help people express their personality and what they want to present to the world. Uh-huh. You know, like, I'm shy, don't look at me. Or I'm confident, right. I'm in charge. Or, right, right. You can come talk to me, and I'm kind of sexy too. Yeah, I know, think like, all the that, that shape just says, "Come talk to me." Con- I'm oh, confident. Yeah, and they're not all they're not all cat eyes, like, but right. they're but it's it's really uh, been a great project, you know. And yeah. I get to connect with so many people and eye doctors <laughs> and people who who put glasses in there. We we uh, mostly sell them at ophthalmologists and opticians' office boutiques. Mm-hmm. We also sell a select number of, of styles and colors at Costco and cool. also have some for young women as well, like young girls. Amazing. Wonderful. This is You're smart. Yeah. You're smart lady. That's awesome. And I just got a new prescription, so oh, I'm actually right. going to do a little shopping, I think. That could be cute. Yeah, we do mm-hmm. fittings sometimes too. Really? I could help you figure out which ones look the cutest. That would be awesome. Who yeah. else would I ask but Lisa Love for Lisa Love eyewear? Yes, I will tell yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I think if we I must. feel good. <laughs> yes, if we uh, must part. Okay. Uh, thank you, Lisa. This was Thank awesome. you very much. Thank you. 
talk so all the time so and I thought what I felt was simple and I thought that I don't Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.